I'm Rhiannon Evans-McFadgen with artist Deshaun Dumas, and this is Notes from Moad, published by Art Practical. Deshaun Dumas is occupied by U.S. slavery's unresolved unfolding. In painting, he turns the conventions of modern art and the aesthetics of telecommunication devices towards the socio-cultural experiences of Black lives lived in and above Euro-ethnic inhumanity. Inhabiting the terror of a past not yet past, his ballistic testimonies mirror socialized death as a radical and salvific subjectivity. Dumas uses chromaticism and objecthood to index U.S. racecraft, the magical way that breathing Black children, women, and men magnetize bullets and weaponize sidewalks, cell phones, cigarettes, and toy guns. In video, his work pairs extrajudicial street executions and arbitrary captivity, both afterlives of a U.S. caste system, with climate catastrophe, a global climate disaster or ecocide first initiated by the genocidal project of Western colonialism, then codified by industrial liberal democratic capitalism and its corollary of identification with white personhood, a biological, cultural, and spiritualized superiority complex that already and always foreclosed the possibility of the human race. Deshaun and I are connecting today via video call, and before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that we are each sitting on native land and recognize the indigenous people who continue to steward these lands for thousands of years. You can learn more about this at usdac.us slash native land. Thank you, Deshaun, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So let me know, where are you calling from right now? Uh, Pomona, California. I'm 35 miles out east of L.A., and about 38 miles north of where I'm uh, getting my PhD at UCI, Irvine. Great. Um, well, I'll jump right into the MOAD conversation because um, you were a 2018-19 awardee of the Emerging Art Artists Program um, at the Museum of the African Diaspora. Can you tell me a little bit about the work you presented in your exhibition and what the impact has been from being a part of this program? I presented six six pieces um one was a 11 minute video um the other was a eight foot ticker um which displayed um an 18th century philosopher's text replacing one word instead of spirit uh the word was replaced uh by whiteness uh and this is hegel uh gwf hegel who was known for his theorizations of the nation state and um, a type of European community. Um, the other four works were paintings. Two dealt with um, the officer who executed Mike Brown, Darren Wilson, particularly his ABC interview, which he was paid a quarter of a million dollars for. And the last two paintings, uh, one was a ballistic uh, monochrome, large arc painting that was shot several times um, with a Glock in a public space. And then it was returned to my studio and sort of um, made presentable. The final painting was um, two large minimal gold paintings um, and they were made from cellophane that was burnt uh, in multiple layers. Very toxic process called Repent and Rebel. And it's been a positive impact. The show was 
definitely a, a great experience to talk to press and um, get feedback uh, about the work and actually see the work um, in a museum space. It's always nice. And you say that um, that that piece that you created was shot in a public space. Um, can you talk a little bit about that process? And if that it sounds like that means the process is a little bit part of the piece. Yeah. So I had a friend who um, has um, property, and they invited me um, to shoot the work there. Um, I usually shoot the work in a more guerrilla style, um, just in any given public place. Uh, but they had a sort of private property that they felt was okay to shoot the work at. Um, and that was a decision that uh, I didn't take, or I didn't make lightly. Um, but in shooting the work, um, it wasn't as private as they thought. And the police did come. Wow. Um, and it was several police trucks came right as we were um, putting the painting back in, in the U-Haul to transport wow. it back to my studio. And um, uh, an officer came by and asked us, if, had we heard the shots? And um, we said yes. He asked us if we had any idea where they might've came from. And we pointed the opposite direction uh, from where we were standing. <laughs> Uh, and he asked to look into um, the U-Haul. And so we lifted it up. He, he looked into it and didn't see anything that piqued his attention. And uh, so we closed it and, and drove off. Wow. Um, but there, you know, there is a sort of uh, risk involved in um, not only using glass um, and its fragility, but actually taking the glass outside and, and, and using a gun on it, um, which is definitely a large, uh, a big part of the work for me. Mm -hmm. Now that's, um, you, your experience just took like everything your work is about and put it into one moment while you were making it. I don't think everybody has that opportunity. Uh, opportunity is an interesting word, but <laughs> experience that moment. Um, it's funny when you were speaking to hear like shooting the work, shooting the work. When I talk to people, usually that phrase means like video and right. you're talking about it, taking a gun and putting a bullet through the artworks, which um, if the listeners haven't seen the work, which hopefully you will take a look um, at the links that we'll provide. But uh, there are it, the, the way that the pieces look as the, the bullet holes create um, shattering effects. They're really viscerally bullet holes. It's not like a question. Sometimes you see like shot paper and it looks like it could have been pin pinpricked or something, but with glass, you see so much more of the, the physicality of what a bullet does. Um, and I think that's really interesting aspect to your work. And also this like combination of using materials I've seen that you've used like car in past works pieces of I believe was it car pieces or or metal um yes. so you're using these materials that are both incredibly strong and resistant and also incredibly fragile 
and show the damage that has happened to them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's super, super powerful. Um, can you talk a little bit about what brought you to these materials and um, yeah, a little bit how you use them? Sure. Um, you know, with glass, I think, as you said, it holds um, violence in a way very few materials do besides the human body. And there's, I guess, a type of, it's a type of like, it's uh, when glass shatters, it seems like the process is still happening, but it's, but it's frozen. And there's something about um, movement, a constant movement and a constant flux that uh, I wanted the work to have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was also thinking about um, a type of psychology, like how can you represent thought? Mm -hmm. And if you think about sort of synaptic connections, the sort of spider webs that happen when you shoot the glass, um, for me, you know, kind of made an analogy to that. So the idea of thought and movement were very important uh, for me. And with the older work, the vehicles where I was using sort of these steel uh, frames that I would go to an auto shop to have bent, the idea of movement was also important. Um, the way they were angled, they kind of had a rotational effect mm. where it was like a turning um, even though the thing was still very still. And that kind of has, uh, in terms of thought, that kind of has like a cosmology for me. So again, you still get thought and movement, but in, in different ways. Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, it's interesting you say movement and thinking about movements. Movement yeah. as the thing that moves and movements and the, the topics that you're, that you're talking about here. Um, I, this is a very like, it's not necessarily about your work, but about the process a little bit is, so I had like, I spent my life never having like even held a gun or anything. And then about two years ago, um, decided that I, I didn't want to be the person in the zombie apocalypse movie who didn't know what to do with a gun when it was dropped in front of them. <laughs> and so went down to a gun range and got like a first lesson and and I found the whole experience to be so like in more intense than I thought it would be. I was terrified of the people around me, which was really interesting like the amount of trust that you have to have in these total strangers holding dangerous weapons. Right. Um, but also like the, that the thing you're holding is so, could so easily harm you, right? Like if you hold it wrong, it can like slice your hand, it could kick back. And then it just like that projectile, which was a very small gun that I was holding was like sliced through the paper. It didn't even move. The paper did not. So all of these moments were really surprising to me and I wanted to keep doing it to get better and better at mm -hmm. it. But every time it was also like, you see in television and stuff all this time, these times people just like throwing a gun around and it seemed so distance from the experience I was having. So I'm really curious uh, as a tool, right? Like you train to use a paintbrush, you train to pour, pour, um, you know, resin. I'm curious about your, your background and experience or training in using, um, using a gun as because you're using it in, in the same way somebody would be using a, 
uh, other another art making tool. Yeah, my uh, introduction um, to actually handling um, a weapon is only a few years prior. Mm -hmm. And it, it started with the sort of first um, ballistic testimonies that I that I made. And with those, I went to uh, a gun range in San Francisco and they give you, you know, 15 minute sort of overview, as you know. Right. And <laughs> yeah, you're like, great. Now, thanks. I know everything. <laughs> and um, I was, you know, had my first experience sort of shooting paper. And it was definitely the violence in regards to the sound. Yeah. This is something that was very jarring. Uh, I didn't like. <laughs> and, you know, the sort of idea that so much force is, is, is just casually in your hand. Right. It doesn't seem, it doesn't seem deserved, doesn't seem legal. It, it just, it's, it seemed very strange uh, to me. But after doing that for, I think, two times, I went to the gun range two times before I actually brought my work in and shot it. Um, by that sort of third time, I was very comfortable, um, a lot more comfortable with it and really kind of took it as a really uh, a space to meditate and be really mindful of mm -hmm. what I was doing, um, which is unfortunately not how I always live my life. Right. Um, so I, I kind of took it as, a, as, as an opportunity to slow down and really concentrate on, on what I was shooting and, and, and thinking about and breathing, right? Because that helps you become a more accurate accurate shot um, by controlling your breath. Um, and, you know, as to your prior question about um, why I chose certain materials, of course, the reflect, like the, the, the reflection aspect of glass, mm -hmm. um, where you see yourself behind a hail of bullets is a very different way than you see yourself when you look in a mirror. Normally, it's a type of whole image um and there's you know something attractive about that oldness but when it's sort of fractured and um disrupted it it it, it gives you a, a different image of yourself and that's something that was important about using the actual material of glass mm -hmm. wow it just brought the, to mind this like a very different version of rothko like this idea of like a color field in front of you that brings in meditation and the thought of the breathing that's needed for, for shooting. I mean, that was surprising to me how meditative it needed to be. You have to focus, right. breathe, sort of like leave out the rest of the world mm. and to take that into, and then you have these color fields that you're breaking up. Um, yeah, that takes the, takes that Rothko concept to a whole other <laughs> realm. <laughs> Yeah, Rothko was, uh, I think for a lot of people, he was always, um, for a lot of people who actually paint too, somebody that um, uh, I had to work against because I liked it so much, you know, yeah. work so much and I just, oh, I just want to make Rothkos. But um, of course, you know, that's not how one really expresses um, one's personal experience. Mm -hmm. but, but of course you can have anchors and touchstones and it was a long time sort of coming, trying to just get away from Rothko and then finding, way, finding a way to actually come back to this sort of 
spiritualized, enigmatic space, um, the kind of floating, um, disembodied landscapes that, 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 that he was able to abstract. I kind of wanted to bring the body back into that in a very, very visceral and jarring way. I think you were very successful in that. <laughs> uh, Thank you. Well, I'm curious about so one of the things I've been talking to some of the other um, folks that were in the Emerging Artists Program. Um, specifically, you know, MOAD itself has had some transformations over the years. As a culturally specific institution, it, it plays this really sort of tenuous role between representing what a particular culture is supposed to be, but also being uh, somehow serve a wider audience, as they always keep saying. I think Moad for a while had that, like, everybody's diaspora tagline that was it's interesting little... choice of words. Um, so I'm curious about your particular thoughts as being, um, you know, but any, I would say, like, the, the transformation has been really positive in that now with this Emerging Artists Program, they have been showing, like, a variety of artists who are black. It isn't like black art or what, what some particular market is supposed to be showing. And it feels like suddenly a more authentic representation of like the vast experiences and styles um, of, of artists. Mm -hmm. And those artists are black. Um, and I really appreciate that shift that they're working towards. Um, I'm curious for you, what your thoughts are on, um, you know, exhibiting in a cultural institution, a culturally specific institution like MOAD, um, and sort of around being an artist who is Black versus being a Black artist and how that's mm -hmm. sort of balanced within your work and within the institution. Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, I was really, you know, glad to sort of um, exhibit with, um, for example, Rashad Newsom. And the idea of bringing sort of queer, gay, trans um, experiences into the space because, um, and, you know, considering my own work, um, where it might be at the sort of, at, at, at an edge where, you know, blackness might not want to celebrate or um, consider uh, these other sort of, aspects of itself. So I was glad that Moad is, is moving in that direction. Um, what was it like to sort of ex, uh, exhibit in a um, institutional space? Um, the, thinking about sort of trigger warnings and, 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 and you know, uh, certain audiences that might enter the space that might, um, necessitate works um, not being shown or, or, or something like this was something I hadn't thought about. Um, but of course, when you are dealing with wider audiences, um, that's something that, you know, the staff is, it, is aware of. And I, you know, learned that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And um, thinking about the difference between between being um, a black artist and an artist who is black, I guess for me it's always thinking about being an artist in a world 
that's really structured through anti-blackness and white supremacy. And so it's an important distinction, but one that um, I don't really carry within me. Mm. It is. Uh it's interesting though, think about like how that may or may not be reflected in an audience too, right? When you walk into an institution, like do we as an audience identify as one thing or another when we walk into a culturally specific institution versus like MOA? So like MOA, I mean, versus MOMA. So you walk into the Museum of Modern Art, like who, who what is this identity I'm walking in with? versus walking into a museum of the African diaspora. And I think one thing that's really interesting is I do find myself more critical of the culturally specific space because I'm like, well, of course, MoMA doesn't know anything, but I'm walking in and you're supposed to, I assume you're supposed to be talking to me, right? Like I'm your audience. <laughs> <laughs> so that, it, but I, I've not thought about like how that affects how I'm looking at the work and my, my, assumptions about that artist um with the audiences do you see a difference in where when you exhibit in um in like black spaces versus multi-culty or white spaces um have you seen a difference in the response from the audience in those different spaces yeah, that's interesting um yes yeah I, I, yes um it seems that there's more, there's almost more conversation that I have in sort of white or, you know, um, non-black spaces mm -hmm. about the work um, and about what prompted the work. And in, you know, predominantly black spaces, it's more of like um, a shared acknowledgement. Mm. Like, you know, that's powerful good job versus like where, you know, why and where, and, you know, did you make this? Yeah. So there's something that seems understood in black spaces. Um, and it just, it, it goes unsaid versus in white spaces, there seems to be more of a, a, a conversation. Mm. That's really interesting. Uh, but to your point about, you know, what, you know, how we map ourselves on or how we demand something, um, depending on what space we walk into, is really interesting too. And yeah, you know, I think when I walk into Moad, there is something like, okay, this is this is my space, and it's 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 supposed to sort of uh, speak to me in ways that no other space does. Um, versus going to SF MoMA, where you know it's like well, I'm going for this one show. Right. That is actually really interesting thing to think about, like community versus like transactional. So yeah, I mean, I I do think that that's really an interesting thought around, you know, the the large institutions are really trying to think of them. So they keep using language right now around like being it being home. Like this is we want this to be your cultural home, your cultural center, and all of these things. But um you know, it, it, it's really hard to be a home for every single person. And right. so I do feel like if most of the people represented and are in, on the walls and who are running the space and making the decisions are 
of not just a white background, right? We're talking about also educated, upper middle class to upper class white audience. That's who they're home of. And some communities have varying degrees of relationship to those homes. Mm -hmm. Thinking about like black history in the United States, that's exactly the home we do not want to be in, right? That's the home of 200 years of oppression is the upper middle class educated white home. Mm -hmm. Um, Versus, so then when a space like Moad, you know, we want it to be community, but if it's reproducing sort of the same strategies of, the MoMAs of the world and the predominantly white institutions, it's really in like sort of direct opposition. Like who whose home is it? Yes. Um, yeah, it's a great point about how things get homogenized if, you know, you're all trying to bring in the same sort of donors, the same sort of viewers. You, you're actually not having like the conversation of, well, how do, you know, how does a... a diaspora make a home and, and and what is it sort of going against and what values is it sort of um, excluding through its sort of oppositional stance because they're, they're you know one usually isn't a diaspora um, because one's been integrated into sort of a national fabric and so you know there would have to be some tension to establish a place that actually feels like home for, for those of, of the diaspora. Um, and, you know, for me, policing is like that sort of focal point um, to mm-hmm. kind of have, not only in my own personal, you know, life, but like, you know, in our sort of lived experience, we see things that would never happen to sort of uh, uh, educated white upper middle class people even after you know they they shoot a church of nine people or shoot you know a hundred people they're they're usually taken alive in handcuffs but you know there are little movements that we make well oh i thought or she you know you know like that sandra bland that you know if that was a white woman who was arrested by a cop and and, and, and essentially the next day came up dead, it, it, would, it would mean something else. Yeah. And, and yeah, you know, it is good that uh, Moad is willing to, 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 to entertain those conversations. And I, and I hope it will sort of expand in that direction because the type of violence work that's being done to um, you know, black people, I don't see it stopping anytime soon. Mm-hmm. So um, we'll need institutions like that. Right. Um, speaking of movements and movement and, and these institutions, I'm curious. Um, you know, sort of in your in your own work, um, are there specific movements or um, community actions that you have? participated in or been trying to support or share that you'd like to also share with the greater community right now? Oh, well, um, that was always something that um, troubled me about my own work was my relationship to movements. And um, as of late, I guess, you know, I I don't know if you would call Afro-pessimism 
necessarily a movement, but um, my professors, Frank Wilderson, Jared Sexton, Sor Han, they've, uh, particularly Frank, um, he, he, he got a lot of calls from um, Black Lives Matter to sort of host talks on this sort of analytical lens. Mm-hmm. And as I'm sort of getting school in it, I, I hope that uh, that will translate into a type of uh, more involvement mm-hmm. in movements. But of recent, it's been the UC COLA for all uh, movement with uh, sort of UC SC being sort of the TAs being fired and going on strike. I've been trying to involve myself in UCI's sort of response in particular, mm-hmm. um, as it's linked to other UCs um, in the state. Great. Can you define a little bit Afro-pessimism for those listeners that might not know what it is? Yeah. So I guess, you know, Afro-pessimism asks the question, um, not when slavery ended, but did it end? Mm-hmm. And it sort of shifts the focus or the definition of slavery, not as defined uh, based on uh, forced labor, but as being constituted through sort of general dishonor, gratuitous violence, and sort of alienation from sort of your family. Like you really don't have a mother. or you really don't have a father, or you really don't have a child. And you kind of see that logic in a lot of social work. Yeah. Um, or, you know, I think, for, I forget the you know, woman's name, but a young woman was shot in like Mississippi not too recently ago, and she was pregnant. And then they tried to put her in jail for endangering like her baby, right? Yeah. But like she was shot. Yeah. Um, are, you know, the idea of gratuitous violence is you can just be sort of harmed for anything, for, for, you know, like you're never really safe. And that goes back to the plantation. And you really don't have the right to defend your life either, right? So your life can be taken, but you really don't have, it's not legitimate for you to defend yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with the general dishonor, um, that kind of fits into already being guilty or you know, being sort of surveilled as you walk into stores. Um, and, and it looks at slavery um, as constituted by that versus forced labor. So maybe that's that's a general overview. It's a good general, yeah. <laughs> it's a little update. And you can see a lot of that in, like, specifically in your bio. I really was impressed how much of your bio is, it's a bio, it's an artist statement, but it's a lot more of a political statement, I would say. Um, and so that's an interesting way of like sneaking in your, <laughs> making people read your political feelings here um, and a little bit of US, like a little bit of US history ins- inserted into. Uh, was that, I mean, I assume that was intentional, but what was that part of your thought process? Was the, was that, or is it, yeah. Um, it's like, you know, if you don't own a telecommunication company, you're, you know, you're usually only talking to like five people or something like this. And so 
you know, the website is just another way of um, communicating information. And, you know, there is, that's kind of like a, it's still a taboo, I, I think, in, in ways in um, the art world. But um, I guess I'm trying to position myself, you know, at, at, at the edges of, of what is generally acceptable. And so, yeah, it was something that was um, considered. Yeah. yeah. That's great. I think that's a tactic I think more people should consider that there was a, um, a residency application that I sent in that instead of trying to actually get the residency, I just used each of those fields to be critical of the sort of racial positioning of that residency. <laughs> and it's really because that's not what people aren't expecting it. And so many people have to read it. It's an interesting tactic. I appreciate seeing in your, in your bio here. Um, so what's next for your work? What's the next thing? Um, you know, like the work really does follow like sort of my political and philosophical thoughts. And as I'm sort of thinking about my project, um, my PhD project, I think the work is going to follow that. And I'm really interested in artificial intelligence and big data policing um, and how, you know, that might shift what we understand um, as the police, as, you know, as we have sort of cameras uh, that are all linked with sort of facial recognition software um, and even skin recognition software where, you know, like IBM has developed uh, this platform that the, the, the New York Police Department uses where you can search by skin tone. What? Um, yeah. Um, so I, I, I want my work to actually um, follow that, that sort of techno-scientific screen surveillance culture and I'm still learning uh, about sort of machine learning and machine vision and AI and so I really don't have any good concepts yet but hopefully in the you know coming months mm -hmm. um, as I learn more about the medium I want to work in um, I'll have some concepts but that's the general direction. Yeah can't wait to see how that manifests. Um, <laughs> And what new skills you have to build to be able to do that. Right. Um, searching for smart people, too. <laughs> yeah. It is amazing how, what artists, I mean, you know, you learned how to shoot a gun so that you could create this artwork. You know, you're probably going to learn about a lot of technology that you wouldn't have otherwise. And I think there's so much, so it's exciting that we as, as makers and people in the arts have to learn these strange things that seem so normal to other people. Um, so, but we learn them all real randomly. Right. And so I'm gonna ask you the last question, which I've, I like to close all of my, um, my interviews and, and Q and A's with, which is if there is one thing that you could ask the listeners right now to do as soon as they stop listening and turn off their computers, one thing you could ask them to do, what would it be? One thing I would ask the listeners to do, um, what would it be? I would say, close your eyes and imagine you were in a different socioeconomic position 
and within a different racialized hierarchy. How would you see U.S. foreign policy and domestic policy? Hmm. All right, thank you so much. <laughs> the moment of request. Um, well, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really great. I'm Rhiannon Nevis McFadgen with Deshaun Dumas, and this has been Notes from Moad, published by Art Practical. Subscribe to Art Practical on iTunes and check us out on Instagram at, at ArtPracticalSF and Twitter at, at ArtPractical. Thank you for listening and for keeping in community. Be well. <laughs>